0: Today we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. If you're reading from the Bible under the chair in front of you, you'll find that on page 961. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand... so we preach, and so you believed. Amen.
1: You may be seated. I'm just going to pray with uh, pastor before he brings the word to us this morning. And just, um, if you would, just bow your heads and quiet your hearts. Lord, we do just uh, come to you right now in the, this place in time, this place in the service we ask that you would just quiet our hearts, that you would open our hearts and give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of the gospel this morning. Perhaps for some it may be the actual scales falling off their eyes to see and understand their need for you as a Savior this morning for those who have already placed their faith and their trust in you then we we celebrate the resurrection this morning and we ask that you would use this message this morning to challenge us to convict us to draw us to you and to be witnesses whether it's in the Dominican Republic or Wells Fargo or any place that you would send us that we would be witnesses to your great gospel and the good news and the hope that we have in you. And Lord, we just ask that you would be with the pastor this morning as he proclaims this truth, give him boldness and clarity, and give him winsome abilities to just share this great news that we have and this great hope in your love and your mercy. In Jesus' name,
2: amen. Amen. Well, go ahead and just leave your copy of Scripture there open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to take our time this morning to work through these first 11 verses. Uh, Here at Delta, um, what we do is we center our preaching time on the explanation of the Scriptures. Uh, And so on this Easter Sunday, what we're going to do is turn our attention to the last part of Paul's first letter that he wrote to the Christians who were in the, the city of Corinth. I don't know if you guys have ever um, uh, have seen America's funniest videos. Uh, Tara and I, my wife, uh, we um, subscribe to Amazon Prime. And if, if you're not Amazon Prime subscribers, the plug for Amazon Prime, they're not paying me anything, is go and get it. Because one of the things that you get from this is you get something called Amazon Instant Video. And so when we first subscribed and we were looking at all these different things what we discovered was there was several episodes at least at that time of America's funniest video on there and sort of like one I mean I grew up watching America's funniest video when like Bob Saget right was like the host I mean we're talking like you know the ancient of days here you know back 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 then and uh well, there's a new host and it's sort of you know jazzed up for you know modern day, but like basically the videos are just the same and sort of like man, you know that, those are good memories for me. It so it's like let's introduce our kids to these, you know right? So they fall in love with like the animal videos, right? Whether it's just like some dog chasing the kid or like somebody tripping over tripping over a cat, you know that they, they were just enthralled with the, the different animal videos, right? There's the obligatory like cringe video, you know like some skateboarder riding a rail and he falls and you're just like oh man that's not good or some dad catching the wiffle ball and the the area where he would rather not catch the wiffle ball, you know. I mean, those videos are still still floating around. But but the videos that I always enjoyed were the videos. I don't know how to categorize them other than categorizing them as like the swinging videos, right? There's always somebody. There's like a rope swing. Tied to some branch, right? And the guy gets up, and he grabs on it. He's tugging on it. Man, it looks secure, and he takes it all the way back as far as he can. He grabs a hold of that thing, and he just lets it rip. I mean, he just basically approaches that rope with, like, full confidence. It's usually, like, some high school boy who thinks he's, like, on the top of the world. Like, right, he's going to swing to the other side of the creek. He wants to get from one side to the other. I mean, he's just going to launch out deep into that pond. So, I mean, he just grabs that baby. He gives it a tug. It seems secure, and then he just goes. And you can always tell the moment, like because the, the videos are a little fuzzy, you can always tell the moment when the branch breaks because the face goes to like this, to like, oh, I mean, oh no, like, this isn't going to go the way I had, I had hoped that this was, was going to go. And the tree branch gives, it inevitably turns into an epic wipeout. I mean, that is, after a while, it's on America's Funniest Videos. So when you think about it, there's, there's a little bit of a lesson, a bit of an illustration we can, we can learn from the category of those swinging videos in, in America's Funniest Videos. Because when you think about it, the only reason that person, guy, girl, mom, dad, whoever it is, the reason why they jumped is because they were sure that the rope that they were holding onto was anchored in something solid. Right? They were assured, like, I'm pulling on this. This thing seems solid. It will bear up under my weight. I am going to grab the bottom end of this rope, and I am going to believe that this thing is anchored in something true and so I'm going to lay hold of this rope because I'm going to trust that it will be able to bear up under the full weight of who I am. And so what do they do? They grab it and they, and they go. For them, there was the top end of the rope. It was, in their mind, anchored to something secure, branch, tree limb, whatever it is. And the, there is the bottom end of the rope, this, this, the place where they were going to come and hold fast to the rope. And when you turn to our text this morning, as the Apostle Paul is wrapping up the first letter that we have that he wrote to the Christians in the city of Corinth, you see that Paul is going to to talk in very similar terms as he talks about this thing called the gospel. See, Paul was a Christian pastor, and he is talking to believers and he's talking about this thing called the gospel. Now, in its essence, we can, we can boil down a definition of the gospel to this. The gospel means good news. The gospel means good news. The gospel is the good news message that sinners, you and I, spiritually dead in our sins, we can actually be made spiritually alive And we can have a right relationship with God as a result of Christ's death on the cross and as a result of his resurrection from the dead. And in order to better understand what Paul was talking about here in these verses, these 11 verses of chapter 15, what we can do is we can think about the gospel like a rope, like the rope that we see in those swinging swinging videos of America's Funniest Video. The top end of the gospel rope is anchored in truth. It's anchored in something sound. It's anchored in something secure. And the the bottom end of this gospel rope is the personal end. It is something that is to be grasped. It is something that we are to hold fast to. And this is exactly where Paul goes when when he goes and he introduces this last thought that he wants to deliver to the Christians there in Corinth. He goes in verses 1 and 2. In your copy of Scripture there, and Paul says this. Now, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, there in Corinth, I want to remind you of this last thing. I want to remind you of the gospel. I preached the gospel to you. You received the gospel. The gospel is what you stood fast in, and the the gospel was the thing that saved you. You held fast to the gospel. But when you read the last phrase of verse 2, you read this from Paul. Paul says, if you hold fast to the gospel that I preach to you, and then he gives this little phrase here, unless you believed in vain. It just seems like a really odd phrase there. Like when we read the scriptures, we we don't go into mind checkout mode. We have to ask like, well, that seems like an odd phrase. Paul, gospel, I preached it to you. You received it. You stood fast in it. The essence of the gospel is that sinners can be made right with God because a Savior has done something to make you right with God. And he lays all this out with confidence, and then there's just sort of this sort of peculiar little phrase on the end "Ah, unless you just believed all this stuff in vain. And so we have to ask the question like, so why that phrase there? What does Paul mean by this phrase, unless you believed in vain? And I think it could be, be this. I think what he's going to do is he's presenting basically like this re- rhetorical thought, this rhetorical question. He's, he's placing this rhetorical question in their lap to cause them to dwell upon and to think about the gospel. Because the way he moves on from there in verses 3 through 7... And then the way he moves on from there in verses 8 through 11, what he's doing is he seems to be answering and emboldening them to the gospel, to believe the gospel, and he's going to run it through the grid of vain belief. See, I think one way that we can believe in vain, when you see that phrase, unless you believed in vain, one way that you can believe in vain is to hold fast to something that was never true in the first place to hold fast to something that was just never true in the first place, we would categorize that as something vain, to have vain belief. Another way that you can have vain belief, another way to believe in vain is to hold fast to something that is absolutely true, but then it has no personal effect in your life. It doesn't, it doesn't lead you to right action rooted in that very true, verifiable thing. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to take the gospel message of Jesus Christ and he's going to test it against this grid of vain belief. And he's going to show us two things. He's going to show us that the gospel is true. The gospel is true. And the second thing he's going to show us is this that the gospel is personal. The gospel is sure. The gospel is secure. The gospel is true. And he's going to show us that the gospel is personal. The gospel is for you. It's not just meant to be that thing out there, that sort of religious idea, but that there is meant to be a right response to this good news message that Jesus makes sinners right with God. So look in your copy of Scripture, phone or the book in front of you. Look at verses 3 through 7. Paul writes this. For I deliver to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to all the apostles. What Paul is doing here is this. is He's, he's going to anchor the gospel in the reality of Christ. And he's going to anchor the gospel in the reality of the cross. And in order to make this case, Paul's going to turn to the historical facts of Christ's death and resurrection. Remember, one of the ways to believe something in vain... One of the ways we define a vain belief is this. It's to hold fast to something that was never true in the first place. It'd be like me coming in and going, I have got to tell you something that I just learned the other day, and I'm holding to it as if it is the gospel truth, and is this, the moon is made of Swiss cheese. I'm telling you, it's the truest thing in the, in the world. As sure as the day is long, the moon is made of Swiss cheese, and you go to your workplace, and you're gathered around the water cooler, and you're talking to your buddies going, man, I've read the other day online. I saw it on YouTube. It's got to be legit. Wikipedia backed this up. The moon is made of Swiss cheese. Your friends are going to look at you and go, this guy is a nutter, one, and two, this guy is holding to something in vain. This is vain belief. He thinks it's true, but really his belief is rooted in something that is not even true in the first place. And so from Paul's peculiar phrase of, unless you believed in vain, we get this sense that Paul is rhetorically asking his listeners, okay, I came and I preached something to you as the truth. And it's like he's asking these believers, does the gospel, which I preach to you, does it fall into the category of vain belief? Does it fall into the category of holding fast to something that is just not even true in the first place? To believe the gospel, is this to hold fast to something that is just pure and utter falsity? And Paul answers this question in verses 3-7 through with a resounding no. He's going to come along and say no. To hold fast to the gospel is to hold fast to something that is as sure and as secure and as true as the day is long. And he does this by unpacking the gospel message with two statements... And then he backs up these two statements with two pieces of evidence. Look at statement number one there in verse three. Paul comes along and says, I'm delivering something to you, and I'm delivering it to you as of first importance, and what I'm delivering to you is what was received by me. This isn't an invention of my own. Somebody shared the gospel with me. And I'm turning around and now sharing with you the gospel facts, the historical data, the historical truthfulness of the circumstances that surround Jesus Christ. The first thing that you need to know, the first aspect that makes up the gospel, that makes the gospel the good news is this, that Jesus Christ died for your sins and Jesus Christ died for my sins and all of this was in accord with the scriptures, See, the essence of sin is this. You and I are bent in rebellion against God. By nature, we are children of wrath. We have nothing to do with God. We come out of the room with hearts bent in rebellion against God. Our thoughts, our actions, our words, our deeds are continually against God. We, by nature, do not wake up and go, I want to live for Jesus Christ. We see a world that thinks and lives this way. And the Bible sums up this way of thinking, this this whole world with one little three-letter word, and it calls it sin. The Bible says that the sin that consumes us separates us from God, and the wages of sin is death. There's physical death because sin has entered the world, but more importantly, there is spiritual death. You are separated and I was separated and cut off from Christ before I was ever met, introduced, repented, and believed in Christ. The wages of sin is death. And for Jesus to be a perfect sacrifice for sin, he had to experience what all humanity experiences as a payment for sin, and that is death. That's why Paul is making a big point out of this. He's coming along and He's saying, listen, Christ died. He didn't die for his sins. He was the perfect Lamb of God. He was the spotless Lamb of God. He never did anything that was in opposition to God the Father. And so the the insanity of the cross, the good news of the cross is this, is that when Christ went to the cross, he wasn't dying upon the cross to pay for his sins. He was dying on the cross to make your sins go away, to absorb the wrath of God for my sins upon that cross see separation from God is the reward that our sin deserves and we should be the ones who justly deserve it after all we're the ones who've sinned against God not Jesus yet at the cross we have one of the world's most grand reversals that you could ever think of upon the cross when Christ died for our sins you have Jesus treated the way I deserved to be treated so that I can be treated the way Jesus deserved to be treated. 1 Peter chapter 3 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes this, In Christ Jesus, you and I, who were once far off, we were separated from God as a result of our sin. We have actually been brought near to God. By what? What is the thing that can actually bring us back into a right relationship with God? Because in sin, we're separated from God. Paul says this, as a result of our sin, we were far off, but somebody, namely Jesus Christ, has done something to actually bring us back into a right relationship with God. And Paul says this, Jesus did this by the blood of himself. And that's a reference to the good news of the cross because it is on the cross, that event we celebrated on this past Friday, that Jesus Christ bore the wrath of humanity of the experiencing the, the separation from God that you and I deserve. This is the glorious mystery of the gospel. And what Paul does is he comes along with that statement Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, but he doesn't leave it there. He, he comes along and he gives the evidence to show that Christ really died because if there is one way to debunk the gospel, it would be this, is to prove that Jesus did not actually experience the wages for sin, which is death. If we could somehow prove that Jesus was like sort of like fake dead, sort of half dead, half alive, like nine-tenths dead, about to die, never really died, but was like really alive the whole time. If we could somehow prove that Jesus never actually died, then we would not have a savior. So that's why Paul comes around and says, listen, Christ died for your sins. And here's the evidence. The bro was buried. Like you don't bury alive people. You bury dead people. Jesus was put to death by a professional Roman execution squad. These guys know when somebody's dead. That's why Jesus was put into a grave. That's why a stone was rolled in front of the grave. Paul is coming along and saying this. The way that we know that Jesus actually experienced the necessary thing, death, physical, spiritual, cut off from God, is because of this. We know that he was buried, and the fact that he was buried is evidence that he really died experiencing the wages of sin, which is death. But he does not in there. Like it would just be really awful news if Paul was just like, man, Christ died for our sins and he was buried, period, end of book. Paul's like, drops the mic and he's out, right? Like that would just be really bad news. Why? Because then Jesus would just be like any other average guy. Everybody dies. Nobody in the history of humanity has defeated Satan, defeated sin or defeated death. Nobody except one, except one. And that is what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. And that's where Paul goes. He goes, the gospel is not the gospel if Jesus Christ only died for our sins and was buried. The gospel is the good news message of God because Christ died for our sins. He was buried, but he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is what makes the gospel good news. This is what the Easter message is all about. If Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, you and I are the most to be pitied because nobody has actually defeated what holds you and I in bondage to sin, which is sin. When you see Paul make this other statement, the back half of the gospel, Jesus was raised on the third day, this is victory language. This is like touchdown, touchdown end zone dance language. This is like the king has just walked through the door and everyone goes nuts language. This is your favorite team just scored the last winning shot, like in the last, like, you know, .2 seconds left, and they've just won the entire championships, championship series language. See, resurrection language is always couched in victory, for life out of death shows that death's curse has been broken. See, Satan's sin and death no longer have reign. This is why Jesus, it is of the utmost importance that Jesus is not still a bag of bones in some grave over in the Palestine area. The fact that Jesus came up out of the grave means this, that there is one man in the history of humanity who has said, I have taken sin's curse upon me. I actually died. I was buried. I was in the grave. I was there for three days. But then when God, by his power, raised me from the dead, it is like a trumpet shout. It is a proclamation. It is a clarion call that this, that Satan, sin, and death have been defeated and that in Christ there is now an avenue for you to actually be be made spiritually alive because before you are spiritually dead in your sin. And then Paul, I mean, uh, Paul turns to another round of evidence because he knows what you're thinking. Right? I mean, after all, this is 2015. Dead people don't come back to life. We're very rational in 2015. Very empirical, scientific. We like numbers. Everyone knows dead people don't come back to life. And what we tend to think as we look back, C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia, quoted, coined this little term, chronological snobbery. We tend in 2015 to like in a very snobbish way look down our nose upon those buffoons of the first century. Those Nimrods back then, now they really believed that dead people came back to life. I mean, they saw it all the time, but I mean, they just didn't have the empirical evidence and the knowledge that we have now. There's no way that anybody could come back to life, but those guys really, really believe that. And Paul's like, no, man, nobody in the history of humanity has a category for dead people coming back to life. When someone dies, they stay dead. And so that's why Paul comes along and he switches to another phase of evidence. He's like, listen, I know this sounds insane, but let me show you the veracity of this statement that Christ was raised from the dead on the third day. And he lists off a bevy of witnesses. He appeals to witnesses as evidence. He comes around and he says, let me tell you about about Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter, the Apostle Peter. So you have Peter, the ringleader of the disciples. Paul says the resurrected Jesus appeared to Peter. The 12, that's code name for the 12 disciples that really walked close with Jesus. Those guys, they saw the resurrected Jesus. Then Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. That little phrase, at one time, is crucial. So what Paul's not making the point is, like, one guy saw the resurrected Jesus, like a really bad game of telephone Remember that like in like, you know, elementary school, like one person says something and like in elementary school, it it doesn't take more than 10 people before like, you know, you say the grass is green and this guy's talking about like, you know, Portuguese is awesome. You're like, what in the world are you talking about, man? Like the Portuguese is never in. Like, how did you go from grass is green to there like a really bad game of telephone? Like Paul's not saying this, that like, you know, one guy's like, yeah, I saw Jesus Then he told woman number two, and she's like, yeah, I saw Jesus. And then like three months later, that person told person number three until Paul can go, man, I've got a loose conglomeration of 500 people who say they saw Jesus over like this 10-year period. And it's like, man, there's no, who cares? I mean, that's like a bad game of telephone. And What Paul says is this, that the resurrected Jesus at one time showed himself to over 500 brothers. Most likely the event in Acts chapter 1, most of whom are still alive. So this is compelling evidence. Paul is saying the gospel historical data, the gospel facts wrapped up around Jesus, you can go and you can talk to like nearly all of them. Granted, some have died, but the high, high majority of these people who are still around. Like, don't take my word for it. Go talk to these people. Then he appeared to James. This is the brother of Jesus. Then he appeared to all the apostles in the original language, the emphasis on that word all, all the apostles, all these people that held high offices inside the New Testament. They saw the resurrected Jesus. The conclusion is this. What Paul is doing is saying that these historical facts concerning Christ's crucifixion, his burial and resurrection, they swell into one loud proclamation. Your belief in the gospel, it is not in vain. That gospel rope, the top end of that gospel rope, it is anchored in something secure. There's verifiable evidence, witnesses who can say, I have seen this. Your belief in the gospel is sure. The gospel rope is anchored soundly and securely. The good news message that Jesus makes sinners right with God is trustworthy and true. But notice that Paul doesn't end there. He turns like right right on a dime, like a door turns on his hinges, and he flows right into verses 8 through 11. But notice what he does. He lays out one more witness, namely himself. He turns right to himself. And he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he, the resurrected Jesus, appeared also to me. So after laying out the factual support for the good news message that that Paul was preaching, Paul turned to the personal aspect of the gospel. He turned to the lower end of the gospel rope. He says the top end is secure. Now let's talk about about that bottom end of the rope. And here Paul turns to himself as an example to show that there was a definite point in his life when the historical gospel facts moved from those facts out there to the gospel of Christ is the solution for my sin problem. And you can go and read about this in the book of Acts. You can go read about it in the book of Galatians. For Paul, Paul was like a pretty bad guy. Paul wasn't a saint. And there was a point in time where in Paul's life it was, I'm going to kill people who believe this, to the resurrected Jesus showing himself to Paul, then Paul had a radical encounter with Christ, and the gospel stopped being those things out there to, oh no. Like, I need the gospel because this is my only hope of being made right with God. Remember, Paul's little peculiar phrase, unless you believed in vain. Another way to believe in vain is to hold fast to something true that has no personal effect hold fast to something true that does not lead to right action i don't know if you've ever seen this channel on youtube i think it's called something like humans are awesome people are awesome it's usually these compilations of videos of just like people doing like some of the most insane things you've ever seen like just doing these incredible feats of like human strength and sometimes in those compilations there's these people called base jumpers right have you seen these people do this for like a hobby base jumpers Like, they take helicopters up into, like, some of the tallest mountains in the world. They go and find these gigantic cliffs, and what they do is they get their kicks by jumping off these things. They have parachutes and stuff on, but, like, their thrill is jumping off these giant, like, bases inside these cliffs and in these mountains. So, if we think about a base jumper, what we would talk to him about is go, do you think, what do you think about the law of gravity? Tell me about that. And that guy's going to go this. Man, I have a secure firm foundation in the law of gravity what goes up will go down nobody jumps and just shoots off into oblivion i guess unless you're an astronaut on the moon maybe or something like that right but like here on earth what you're going to do is i'm going to jump up and i'm going to go up for like maybe like you know 0.01 seconds and i'm going to go down very very fast i am holding fast to this very true thing the law of gravity and i'd be like man that's pretty wise for you being a base jumper you're going to want to hold pretty securely to the law of gravity And then what I do is sit there and watch him go, man, go at it. And then he he gets up, he goes over to the edge of the cliff, and he's standing there. And I'm like, man, what are you doing? Like, I don't see any backpack on your back. I don't see any parachute. I don't see any little wing system that's gonna help you go down. He's gonna be like, Man, I know, I love the law of gravity. And he's like, and he just jumps, and you're gonna be like, What in the world? The guy just sat there and waxed eloquent about the law of gravity, saying he's holding firmly to something true, the law of gravity. But we would categorize him as having a vain belief because his belief in the true thing, law of gravity, didn't actually lead him to put a parachute on his back. And Paul's point is this. It is not enough to give mental acceptance to the historical facts of Christ's life. To hold fast to the gospel as truth means that you see the gospel as necessary and the only answer for your sin problem. And this is exactly where Paul goes as he explains his story. Paul shifts his language in these last verses. He shifts to start using this idea of grace as he explains how the grace of God changed him. And he starts talking about the good news of grace. Grace is this idea of unmerited favor, the unmerited favor of God. And here you have Paul talking about the good news of the unmerited favor of God and how it was applied to his life. See, before Paul was a pastor, he was a persecutor. Paul made it his life's mission to put people who believed in Jesus to death. You can go read about this in the book of Acts. He made it his life's mission to go take people who believe in Jesus and to put them into jail. Then at a point in time on a road he was walking to Damascus, the resurrected Jesus, inserted himself into Paul's life and the trajectory of Paul's life was completely changed. Paul is blown away by the power of the gospel that changed him. Paul, in another letter that he wrote to another pastor named Timothy, Paul said this about himself. Formerly, before I was a pastor, before I was a believer, before the gospel saved me, I was a blasphemer. I spent the time and energy of my life, the thoughts, words, and actions of my life to make God look very little. I was trying to de-God God with my actions and my words, and I was very good at it. I was a persecutor. The people who said they believe in Jesus, I took my time and my energy and my thoughts to make sure these people got hurt, some killed, some thrown in jail. I spent my time raging against the people of God. I was a persecutor. He says this I was not only a blasphemer and a persecutor, but I was an opponent, not only an opponent, but an insolent opponent. He was crazy mad and an opponent to the very works of God. Formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And here's this language, the grace, the good news of grace found in our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to do one thing and that is to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner... As somebody who spent his time blaspheming, persecuting, and being an insolent opponent, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Essentially, Paul closes out this section of 1 Corinthians with these two thoughts. The good news of grace The gospel of grace is this, that no one is beyond salvation. Nobody's beyond salvation. None of you here in this room are beyond salvation. Paul says, look at me, look at who I was. If anybody should have been beyond the reach of salvation, it should have been me. But Jesus saved me by his grace and by his mercy. And some of you are thinking, okay, the gospel stuff that you just keep droning on about, I mean, that's good news, but you don't know me. You don't know what I'm about. You don't know what I struggle with. You don't know what I think. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm doing. There's no way that God could save me. I am too bad to be saved. And Paul comes in bearing witness to the gospel saying this, the trustworthy saying that is deserving of full acceptance is this, Christ Jesus came in the world to save somebody exactly like you. To save somebody exactly like you. This is the good news of grace. You're right. When you say, I think I'm too far beyond being saved, there's a sense in which you are rightly declaring something true because there's no reason, there's nothing lovely within you for you to be saved. There's nothing lovely within you that that God looks down on him and goes, man, I've got to have him, I've got to have her. Sin makes us repulsive in the sight of God, but God with great love and great mercy looks upon us and in grace free sovereign, scandalous, unfavored mercy draws us into a right relationship with God. This is the good news of grace. And the good news of grace is also this, that no one is beyond being used by God because this Paul who is the chief of sinners, who was made right with God by the grace of God, it is that same grace of God which then turns and releases him to be used and employed by his new king, King Jesus see the Gospel of Christ is true and the Gospel of Christ is personal. so let's end with this how do we how do we respond to this like Easter Sunday, the Gospel resurrection Paul's been talking about like so what does this mean? I think it can mean at least three things first off and simply for believers, for those of us who are are believers in Christ, those of us who have been born again is another language that the Bible uses to talk about how we've been made we have, we've gone from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. For those of us who've turned from sin and placed our faith in Jesus as our only hope of salvation, the gospel makes, makes us witnesses. The gospel makes us witnesses, and our witness is to be all about the gospel. You see this in the several categories that Paul references. He looks to them and says, listen, if you want to hear somebody witness about the gospel, look to Cephas, look to the 12, look to the 500, and then the Apostle down the line. Paul, by nature of just him writing this letter saying, look at me, look what the grace of God has done in my life, Paul is a witness. What we see is this precedent set that for believers, when the gospel saves us, it makes us a witness, and then we in turn go and proclaim our witness to be all about the gospel message of Jesus, pointing others to Jesus, talking about Jesus. Another way to respond is this. Some of us here are unbelievers, unbelievers you would not call yourself a Christian. And instead of the gospel making you a witness, the gospel comes bearing a witness to you. See, what we've been talking about is this. We've been likening the gospel to a rope. And we've been talking about the top end of the rope, and we've been talking about the bottom end of the rope. And what Paul has been doing this whole time is he's been coming along and saying the gospel is secure... The gospel is foundational, and the gospel is rooted in the cross of Jesus Christ, and that the only way for you to be able to move from death to life, the only way for you to be able to go from being spiritually dead to being made spiritually alive is grounded in the good news of the cross. And that this gospel rope, this thing we've been talking about, it is anchored soundly, it is anchored securely in the good news message of Jesus Christ. And the call of the gospel for you, if you're an unbeliever, is this, is to recognize that the top end of the gospel rope, it is sound, it is secure, it is anchored in Jesus Christ, it is anchored in the work of the cross, And the call and the compelling call of the gospel is this, is that don't just come along and just look at the top end of the rope and go, man, you know, that's really great. I I see that, and that's lovely. But the gospel calls to compel us to grasp the bottom end of the rope and to hang on to it for dear life because that is where salvation is found. It is found in you holding tight to the bottom end of the gospel rope, which is anchored itself securely into the top end of the gospel rope. But there's two dangers for you if you're an unbeliever here. The first danger is this, is that you don't grasp the gospel rope because you don't believe the top will hold. You hear Paul talk about what he talked about in verses 3 through 7 and years ago. Like, that's just, a, I mean, there's no other way to say it. You just call it what it is. You, you think it's a load of BS. It's baloney. It's bunk. Dead people don't rise. I don't care what Paul is saying. I don't care if Paul's got witnesses. And so what you do is you look upon the gospel and go, no. I'm not going to buy into it. The danger for you, if you're an unbeliever, is this, that you don't grasp the gospel rope because you think the gospel just isn't really for you. You might come along and look at the top end of the rope and go, yeah, Jesus, got it. Cross, got it. Death, burial, resurrection, got it. I get the whole church thing. I get the Bible thing. I get the prayer thing. I get the whole religion thing. But I don't need that. I mean, after all, I'm not, I'm no Paul mean, I'm not calling myself an insolent opponent. I'm not calling myself a blasphemer. I'm not calling myself a persecutor. Those bad people out there, they need that kind of stuff, but I don't need it. And so what you do is you look at the gospel rope and go, top end, got it, bottom end, not for me. And so you don't grasp hold of the gospel rope. Yet the gospel bears witness to you of a crucified and resurrected Christ and it compels you to respond. The gospel is calling you to see the evidence as true and to see that the evidence is for you because you are just as bad as Paul is even if you haven't done what Paul has done because no matter how great or small your sin is, we are all children born into sin and we need somebody to make us spiritually alive and that is found in Christ. That is why Paul said Christ died for your sins. Christ was buried for your sins. Christ was raised from the dead, defeating Satan, sin and death, so that he could defeat your sins. Christ is your only means of having a right relationship with God. So the compelling nature of the gospel that's bearing witness to you is come. Be made right with your creator. Come, respond to the gospel. Be compelled by the top end of the gospel rope. Lay hold of the facts and see that they're secure and that they are the source of your salvation rooted in Jesus Christ himself. But some of you are probably in this category because, I mean, this is the way I was in the category before I was a believer, is that you're not quite convinced. It's not that you're just looking at it and going, BS, not going to believe it. But you sort of stand in that world like, okay, I just need a little bit more time to chew on this. You can talk to my wife. I take a while to make decisions. I like, I like chewing on things. It's like I'm not just going to buy into the gospel because some guy wearing a blue blazer on Easter Sunday is telling me to, all right? I'm willing to be convinced. I'm willing to have conversations. I'm not saying no. I'm not saying yes. So what if you're not quite convinced? Well, then my invitation for you is one way that you can respond is this, that you need to know that Delta, Delta Church is a place for you you're welcome and wanted. When you look around this room, all of us found ourselves who are believers at some point in time in these categories going, not quite convinced, sort of convinced, man, I thought the gospel was just a load of baloney. That was part of Darren's testimony. I mean, he was just sort of like God cashing out. And then God inserted himself into Darren's life and saved him. Some of us are like, I'm there, but I just need a little bit more convincing. So how do you respond? You realize this. We want you. We we want you to be a part of this church family. You are welcomed and you are wanted. If you are open to being convinced by the gospel, this is a place where you are welcome to be. If you're a doubter, if you're a skeptic, if you're a searcher, you you will be warmly embraced here. We'll invite you in. We will pull you into the way that we do church because we want you to gaze upon the Christ who was crucified, dead, and buried, but resurrected to life. And our aim as a church is for the gospel we proclaim to produce a culture of grace. We're all grace people. None of us are people that come bearing something better than you. What we do is we look and go, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's by God's unmerited favor that that I am a believer in God. And I want to help you walk in this way and realize this and recognize this. Lastly, I think it's this. And as the band comes, we can respond in this way. This morning, we saw Darren get baptized. And what baptism is, in a nutshell, is it's an outward sign of an inward reality. Darren is making a profession of faith, and as he made a profession of faith that Jesus Christ took him from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, we looked at baptism and we said, this is an outward sign. When he went under the waters, it was like him dying to sin, and when he came come up out of the waters, it was like him being raised to a new life. One of the other ways that the Bible talks about us proclaiming this reality of what Jesus has done for us is by taking of the Lord's Supper. So if you're a believer here today on this Easter Sunday with us, we call you and we ask you: you can come and you can partake of this table. If you are a believer in Christ, if you have been born again, if you have laid hold of the bottom end of that gospel rope, trusting in Jesus Christ and the work that he did upon that cross, our, one way that you can respond is to come and to worship God by taking the Lord's Supper to come and take that little piece of bread and take that little cup of juice because what you're saying in these two things is this. As I eat the bread and the bread breaks apart and is crunched and is broken in my mouth, what I'm proclaiming is this, that Christ's body on the cross was crunched and broken and bruised for me. And when you come and you take of that little piece of juice, as you lift your head back and you tilt that cup and the juice pours out of the cup into your mouth and you can just feel it sort of pouring down your throat into your stomach, what you're meant to do is your mind is go, when I look to the cross, I am reminded afresh of the way Jesus' blood poured out of his body for the forgiveness of my sins. And you come and you take of these elements and what you're doing is you're proclaiming to all to see that what happened on the cross was through Christ's body through Christ's blood is that it had an effect on me. It saved me. These are the things that I'm placing my hope of salvation in. So if you're a believer, come and partake of these things. If you're an unbeliever and you need to respond to salvation, I'll be in the back, come to me. If you're in that, I'm open to be convinced, tell somebody. If you're a believer, be encouraged today. Jesus is alive. Like that's the good news of today. That's meant to elicit this thing that we call a smile. Joyful heart. Joyful heart. We worship the one who has defeated Satan, sin, and death. Stand to your feet, raise your hands, and worship our risen Savior. So in these ways, come and respond as our band leads us in worship.